Hello, this is your host, Rita Jablonski, on the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. You may be wondering, gee, what's been going on? Because I was producing podcasts fairly regularly on a weekly basis. And for the last couple of months, it's been a challenge to do that. So after giving some thought to all the projects I'm involved in and my goals, For what I'd like to accomplish over the next couple of months, I've decided on a couple of things. First, this podcast will be monthly. There's going to be some months where there'll be more than one release, but for the most part, I'll be releasing a monthly podcast. I have also decided to renew my monthly free webinar. I was considering about stopping it for a while, but I've had such good feedback and such good results from those webinars that I have this upcoming year's schedule on the Dementia Centric Solutions website. There is a link in the show notes. And I'm really happy to be making those two changes, making the podcast monthly and doing the monthly free webinars. I am also, and you've probably been hearing this for a while, but I've been working on the Dementia Caregiver Program, and my goal is for those of you who sign up for the program that you will ultimately become your own dementia expert for your family member, that I'll have enough information and enough times for group coaching that you can go through the material on your own and then attend some of the live talks, or I should say live Q&As, and get help for specific solutions. So stay tuned. Okay, and let's get started. This is the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast where I explain how caregivers can lovingly respond to confusing or challenging behaviors and reconnect with family members living with dementia. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. If you have been listening to my podcast, You know that I explain dementia behaviors and provide strategies for you, my awesome listener. Today, I'm going to dive a little deeper and share with you what I call my formula, my approach. My approach is how I go about interpreting the behavior, which the interpretation point is the first step before knowing which strategies to use, and even more importantly, how to tweak a general strategy into a personal one that will work for a specific person living with his or her dementia experience. The strategies that I talk about in all of these podcasts serve as general approaches, general techniques. I have a recipe for understanding these behaviors that I'm going to share on this podcast today. When I work with my private clients one-on-one, 
I go through this same process with them. I ask many questions and based on the information that is provided, I then put together a assortment of strategies that are appropriate for that situation. And then I go the additional step and work with my clients to modify the strategies. So they will work for that particular person in that particular situation. For those of you who are new to listening to me, yes, I do provide one-on-one caregiving coaching where I help you understand, prevent, and manage many of the difficult dementia-driven behaviors, especially care refusals. And care refusals will send many a caregiver off the deep end, and understandably so, because care refusals can be so frustrating when you are trying to care for someone with dementia and you are exerting a lot of effort, and in spite of all of that effort and energy, your loved one may refuse to bathe or refuse to change clothes or may refuse to keep on a adult diaper or may do any number of things that interfere with your ability to provide care. Because you are listening to this podcast, you likely know exactly what I'm talking about. You can go listen to other episodes and learn general approaches like entering their reality or distraction or even bridging or chaining. And thank you. Lady Gray just ran across my keyboard. I have adopted two small kittens from the barn and they are all in the office. The kittens are running around. Amira's laying on the floor on her carpet and Lady Grey is vying for my attention because she is quite upset about the kittens. So if you hear anything in the background, I apologize in advance. Okay, so today I'm going to share with you, my listener, the formula I use with my pro private clients to understand the behaviors and then personalize the approaches so that the behaviors can be prevented and managed. Here is my formula and it does sound like a mathematical formula. It is neurodegeneration plus personality plus values plus cohort equals behavior. Huh? Yeah, let me unpack that for you. The first term, neurodegeneration, is a big word that simply refers to the type of dementia and the subsequent damage it is doing to specific parts of the brain. Neurodegeneration is a fancy word for the death of nerve cells in the brain. That's all it is. And when nerve cells die, when neurons die, the brain literally shrinks. I had someone ask me once, will the person's head get smaller? And no, the skull stays its shape. The skull stays the same, but the brain inside the skull, instead of taking up a lot of space, just gets smaller and smaller. Your body then uses the cerebral spinal fluid to keep the brain from bouncing all over the place. 
The spinal fluid cushions the shrinking brain inside of the skull. So when a physician or a nurse practitioner or a PA or radiologist looks at an MRI, they will see what parts of the brain are shrinking. And that's one way a clinician can help diagnose the type of dementia, depending on the shrinkage pattern. Certain types of dementia follow a general shrinkage pattern. Now, you do need more than one MRI, and there's also other tests, neuropsychological testing, for example, and other types of tests, imaging tests, that can help determine if this is a Parkinson's disease situation versus an Alzheimer's, but that's a whole other conversation. If you would like to know more about the five main types of dementia, that is Alzheimer's, vascular, frontotemporal, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and Lewy body, you can go onto the main area of the podcast and you can search for episodes that dive deep into those different types of dementia. Plus, I do have an early one. I want to say it's episode one. That is meet the dementias. It provides an overview. So back to neurodegeneration. Different parts of the brain have different jobs. A person with Alzheimer's dementia will likely have a pattern of brain neurodegeneration, brain shrinkage, that is a little different than someone with, say, frontotemporal dementia. Looking at the patterns of shrinkage is usually the first step in figuring out the dementia. And knowing the parts of the brain and their job and knowing what happens when those parts of the brain shrink helps to understand which strategies would be appropriate and helpful and why. So let's talk about Alzheimer's for a sec. With dementia, following an Alzheimer's pattern, there is a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And there's one on each side. So you have two hippocampi. Plural is hippocampi, singular is hippocampus. When the hippocampi shrink, the short-term memory problems show up. The type of brain breakdown that you see is... is the, that you see in the behavior is the person will start repeating the same questions or statements over and over again. They will have problems with retaining the information you're giving them in your conversation. But in a person with frontotemporal dementia, the brain shrinkage will look a little different and different strategies would be used for those individuals. For example, I have two people in the moderate stage of dementia. People in the moderate stage of dementia usually can handle their own self-care, but are unable to interact with the world without help. These people generally need help with taxes, paying bills correctly, and food shopping. So I have two people in the beginning of the moderate stage. One has frontotemporal 
dementia and one has Alzheimer's dementia. With FTD, you start to lose cells in the temporal and frontal part of the brain, the frontal and sides of the brain. When the front part of the brain starts to break down, that frontal lobe is your adult brain. That's the part of the brain that tells you, yes, you have to do things you don't want to do. You have to do the laundry. You have to get your tax records ready. You have to pay the bills. You have to go to work. And as much as I would like to take a month-long vacation and just hang out with my fur babies and maybe go for a trip somewhere, my frontal lobe says, no, you have to go into work because you have several meetings today, two of which you are running. That explains the executive part, the front part of your brain, the adult part of your brain. When that part of the brain starts to shrink, your teenager part of the brain takes over. And that's when the problems start because you have the teenager part of the brain that wants to call the shots and that teenage part of the brain has access to adult resources like savings and pension plans. With FTD, you also can get problems with what's called apathy. Apathy is just sitting there, sitting on the couch, sitting in the bed and not wanting to do anything. When apathy happens, that's very frustrating. I have family caregivers all the time asking, how do I get this person motivated? I yell at them, I plead, I beg, I bribe, and nothing works. So here is where the neurodegeneration piece of the formula informs the strategies. With someone with FTD who's having trouble with behaviors and apathy, the training approach where you start the task and have them finish it may work really well with a person in the moderate stage of FTD because you are addressing a behavior, apathy, that is correlated with the shrinkage of specific parts of the frontal lobe. You are compensating for the brain. So for example, with chaining, I may say, I may hand them a glass of water and bring it to their lips and, and say, here, drink it. And they may take the task, they may finish the task, take the glass from me and drink the water. I may do the same thing with having them getting dressed or undressed, getting into the shower. I may start to begin removing clothes and have them finish it. And again, I apologize for the background noise. Loki is discovering the computer cables and do not chew my microphone. Thank you, Loki. I'm going to have, to have these kittens on my, my monthly webinars because they are hilarious. Anyway, now let's switch gears. Let's say I have this, a person with Alzheimer's in that st same moderate stage. Chaining would, may not necessarily be the right technique. Instead, cueing, short one-step commands with some gestures and pantomime, that might work better for a person with Alzheimer's. Here, mom, put your sock on. Here, mom, put your other 
a sock on. The difference is if I used cueing in a person with FTD, I may get pushback from the person with FTD who says, I know how to put my shoes on. I'm not stupid. But if I go ahead and start doing the activity, they may follow along. This is where neurogeneration comes in with figuring out which strategies and then tailoring the strategies. Knowing the type of dementia helps me figure out which tools in my toolbox I'm going to select. Now, at this point, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to talk about the other pieces and how it all goes together. Next is personality. What was their personality like before they started having the brain changes? Sometimes personality stays pretty preserved. Other times it changes. So was the person outgoing, always the center of attention? Did they love to be in the middle of everything? Or was the person living with dementia quieter and preferred to be in the background? For example, I had a client I was working with and he was taking care of his wife with FTD and he felt like he needed to keep his wife busy. He didn't like the fact that she wanted to sit on the sofa and talk with the paid sitter. She was happy to talk and play cards and the husband had in his mind, he believed that she should be physically busy at all times. She should be getting up and walking around the house and doing something. And the sitter wasn't sure what to do because if the sitter tried to introduce other activities, it didn't go well. And the husband then sought me out. And when I met with the husband, he reported that his wife was a homemaker and he was in active duty military for four decades. He was always deployed somewhere and his wife was home, quote, running the show. I should have asked more what that meant, but I thought that based on everything the husband was telling me, I thought it would be appropriate for him to keep his wife busy by encouraging her to say, do housework items, like the types of things people do to run a house, like fold laundry, run the vacuum, etc. And this suggestion backfired big time. When he attempted to get her to do household activities, she locked herself in the bathroom and she refused to come out. And uh, one day it was the paid caregiver who was on the call with the husband. And the paid caregiver started telling me how much the woman was ahead of her time. Like she was running the family business in the 60s while her husband was deployed. And I did not realize that. And the paid caregiver started to tell me how the wife hired, fired people, handled the bookkeeping, dealt with all the vendors. And in fact, she had her own housekeeping staff. She ran the house just like she ran the business. She was used to being in charge and delegating, not being told what to do. Because I made the mistake of not diving deeper into her personality and learning about the personality of this lady, I had given her caregiver spouse suggestions that were not aligned. 
And this woman was accustomed to being the boss and she was not going to follow her husband around the house. And as soon as I learned this information, I worked with the husband and the sitter to modify the strategies. We learned that if you gave her a adding machine, binders filled with yellow legal paper and lots of pens and papers, she would sit at her desk and interact with the sitter as if the sitter was her secretary. So problem solved. She was staying active during the day. We fixed her sleep, wake, her mixed up days and nights, and everything started to work out. So that's how you can incorporate personality into strategies. Values also come into play. Values refer to what the person living with dementia believes to be important. Sometimes false beliefs, also known as delusions, may occur because of values. And let me provide an example. Let's say the person living with dementia is 70 years of age and is becoming confused when he cannot find his wife. His wife may be in the next room, but if he cannot lay eyes on her immediately, he becomes very upset and thinks his wife has left him. In fact, he is now accusing his wife of having affairs with men, and that is why she is, quote, never around. The adult children are absolutely shocked. They have no idea where this is coming from. And this is where I will jump in and ask questions about values and previous life events. Was there a time in the past in which there were episodes of infidelity and not necessarily with the current spouse? And oftentimes I'll hear stories about a previous marriage where the spouse was very unfaithful. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what happens is those old memories left some scars. As the person with dementia moves backwards in time, they may be accessing some of these old memories and then confusing them with the current situation. And because they value, say, fidelity so much and had experience with infidelity, that they may be mixing up the memories and accusing the current faithful spouse of bad behavior. Other situations that may occur because of values, let's say the person living with dementia is financially well off, but they tell everybody that they're fearful of running out of money. And the caregiver starts showing the person bank statements and nothing seems to work. Where this fear may be coming from is old money stories from the past. Perhaps there was a time when money was very scarce. And we see this with people who grew up in the Great Depression and will not throw anything away because they lived in a time of extreme scarcity. That's why it's good to know about people's value systems. Again, I had an individual who was caring for her mother and her mother always worked as a domestic and cleaned other people's houses. The daughter was having trouble with her mother because the mother with who had Alzheimer's was refusing to remove soiled clothing. And so what the daughter did is she tapped into mom's value system. Mom was very proud of her work as a domestic. And the daughter, I worked with the daughter to come up with a script 
And the script was, mom, we have to get the laundry done in order to get paid. And I need your clothes to finish the load. And that worked like magic. And the next thing, mom was not only removing sold clothing, she was going into her closet and throwing all the clothes into the washing machine saying, we need to make the loads big enough so we get paid. So I've given you examples of working with people's personality and their values and knowing their type of dementia can actually be a lot of fun because that can help tailor the strategies. The last thing I'm going to talk about is what is called cohort. Cohorts refer to the time period in which people were born. And we have cohorts now like baby boomers and millennials. And it's interesting to see how the cohorts collide a little bit. I have families trying to hire paid caregivers and they're hiring people who may be in their late 20s or 30s. And there was a situation where one family had a caregiver who, although the caregiver was highly recommended, she had a very funky hairstyle, like multiple wild colors in her hair. And she also had a lot of tattoos that were visible and she showed up wearing street clothes. The care recipient was born in the late forties and had lived in the South. So this individual with dementia took one look at a woman with multicolored hair and tattoos walking into the house and the person with dementia had a bit of a meltdown because a woman with brightly colored hair and tattoos in the person living with dementia's cohort, those are people who are biker chicks. This woman wanted to know why the motorcycle gang lady was here in her house. It didn't matter about the references that this person had. The person living with dementia was responding to the presence of tattoos, the strange for that person's hair color, and the lack of a uniform. And also being raised in a specific cohort can also affect the words people use. And this can get difficult when the caregiver is a member of a different race or gender than the care recipient. They may engage in behaviors or use language that is no longer tolerated. For example, if you've ever watched Mad Men on Netflix or the old Columbo movies, it is not uncommon to see people smoking everywhere and anywhere. There's an episode where Columbo is at a crime scene, which is somebody's house, and he's walking around with a lit cigar and puffing on the cigar as he walks throughout the house. And I'm thinking this was filmed in the 70s. And although that was okay behavior in the 70s, if, if I were to walk into someone's house and light up a cigar, can you imagine the looks I'd get, because that would be a really big no-no. It would not happen. And so if, so where I'm going with this is you can have people who are moving back in time. I might have an 80-year-old male who moved back in time 
And in his mind, he's 18, he's not married. And here comes a 20 something therapist who's going to help him do some physical therapy. And he may be flirting with this individual and he might even pat her bottom, which today would get him in a lot of trouble. But it didn't get people in trouble in like the 1950s. If you, for those of us caring for someone who's moving backwards in time and they start to use language or they start to engage in behavior that might have been tolerated in a certain decade and it's not tolerated now, that can also help you understand where the behavior is coming from. So again, knowing the cohort helps you understand the behavior and understand what strategies to use. So to wrap this up, one needs to understand neurodegeneration, the type of dementia, the behaviors, their value system, their personality, and their cohort. And knowing all of that is the first step in identifying the best strategies and tweaking them. If you are a caregiver or care partner and are struggling with behaviors and are interested in working with me personally, please visit my site. I have links below and you can email me my emails below and ask me for information on coaching and coaching sessions. And I am experimenting with, I do offer hourly sessions, but I am experimenting with the model where I work with people for several months. And we, we the first time we work together is an hour. And then the check-ins are 30 minutes. And so that's, so that's uh, one price for the hour and then a different price for the half an hours. And I am, again, I am testing these different offers and seeing what works. So if you'd like to work with me, please contact me. And it is one set price regardless of the number of people on the video call. Okay. Thank you for listening. And together, we're going to make dementia our bitch. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast platform so other dementia caregivers can find this podcast. If you are a caregiver for someone with dementia and need help understanding and dealing with these behaviors, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Make Dementia Your Bee, or email me, info at makedementiayourbitch.com.